children come up and when we get a chance to pray for our children. Shout it. Scream it from the mountains. Go tell it to all the masses. He is God. You have in your worship flyers a sermon outline, if that's helpful for you, as we kind of track with the sermon. Paul, the Apostle Paul, starts off this letter to the Romans fairly typically for him. Comments about his call, his prayers for them as a church. He blesses them. He kind of gives his credentials and his pedigree, so there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he speaks with God's authority. And then, bam! Verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We hear these words, I'm not ashamed. But I got to thinking this week as I pondered the text, you know, that's kind of a, an odd way to put it, it seems to me. Why not, I am proud of the gospel? Why is it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in the negative? I mean, some of you are grandparents and you have those bumper stickers on your car. My, my son can beat up your son or whatever you know, it says on those. You know, I'm proud. He's an on-roll student. All those different bumper stickers. But I can't imagine putting a bumper sticker on my card as a grandparent saying, uh, I'm proud of my grandkids. Uh, or, That's what I would want to say. But I wouldn't say, I am not ashamed of Eli, my grandson. I am not ashamed. Doesn't it kind of make you wonder what you did wrong? You know? It just feels a little bit funny. Why does Paul put it in the negative? And this... Hang with me for a minute. Let me play with this a little bit. When do we use kind of the negative expression, the negative way of putting things? And for some of you, you're a little bit on the negative side, and it's a lot of the time, but, you know, when do we do that? As I thought about that, I realized it's when I want to make an emphasis, when I want to make a point, when I want to take kind of a stand, when um, we want to be emphatic and clear about what our views are on a subject, when there's kind of these conflicting views, swirling issues, and we want to make it clear where exactly we stand. I'm not a part of that, or, you know, I, I, I really don't share that view And it kind of makes that point, claiming our territory, our turf, our viewpoint. Ponder, what if Paul were here in Sumner? What if Paul were here in Faith Covenant Church this morning, other than by letter? What would he say to us? You see, the culture of Paul's day when he was ministering was a tough culture. Rome was putting increasing pressure on the Christ followers. 
these people that seemed to be a growing movement, and Rome was a little bit afraid of what might happen and what might become of the situation. And so Rome was putting this pressure on Christ followers. And, and take the cross as an example. Today I'm wearing a cross. Many of you wear crosses as a part of your uh, accessorizing. Or some of you wear it for reasons that the cross is a special gift and you wear it all the time. Some of you wear it out so it can be seen. And I will often comment at stores and so on. It's a great conversation starter about oh, I really like your cross. Does it have a special meaning for you? And it's a way of inviting or opening up a conversation and so on. But in Paul's time, in Roman culture and society, it was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of having done something severely wrong against the state. You see, the cross at its core is, uh, in the Christian faith, is something meaningful. It's something that blesses us. It's something we call attention to. I can't wait until we get the light fixed again so you can see the one on that wall. But in society then, in Roman culture, it was a symbol of capital punishment for anyone who was a non-Roman citizen. Society people, honorable people, they don't die on crosses, you see. We sing a song which kind of captures it. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross So the emblem of suffering and shame. In verse 2 it says, On that old rugged cross, so despised by the world. And then verse 4 picks up the theme again. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. A lot of shame attached to the cross. It would have been repugnant to the non-believing world when Christians declared that their Savior died on a cross, so why don't you give your life to Him? Frankly, if anyone had a good reason to be ashamed of the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? Mom greets son as he comes home. Oh, your dad, the Apostle Paul, he's in jail again. I mean, he was chased out of, forced out of, smuggled out of almost every city he ever visited. He was laughed at in Athens. He was called a fool in Corinth. We got a, a, a profile from one of our pastoral candidates here. I just wanted to read it to you and then recommend it to the, I hope it's not too late. Maybe we can consider this one. It says, are we servants of Christ? Am I out of my mind to talk like this? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night uh, and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers and danger from uh, bandits and in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from pastoral search committees, in danger from the country, from danger at the sea, in danger of false believers. I have labored and, teens, listen up, toiled and have gone without sleep. I mean, torture, you know. 
And uh, I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides, everything else that I face is the pressure of my concern for all the churches, including Faith Covenant, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is uh, led into sin but I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever and ever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Artus, uh, in the city of the Damascians, guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. And on and on the resume goes. Uh, Stop by and get that afterwards. Might want to consider him as pastor. Paul, in his resolve, in his belief, in his convictions, in his faith that he had, says, take your best shot. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that leads me to point B, that it takes godly courage, and that was godly courage on the part of Paul to take a stand for his Lord Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord. And today, in spite of our Christian heritage as a nation, which our children will probably not hear much of due to revisionist history, the gospel is ridiculed. Christian values and morality are called quaint, old-fashioned, archaic, antiquated. Maybe we feel ashamed of being a Christ follower, a little embarrassed, a little timid and shy. Some people at school or at work, we'd really rather they didn't know that we were a Christian or regularly went to church. I had a friend in a previous church, and he would occasionally go golfing on Sundays just so his co-workers wouldn't think that he was a religious fanatic or went to church too much. We're afraid of being labeled. We're worried of what our friends will think if they know about our faith. And it's probably why many of you don't invite people to come with you to your church. We have a variety of outreach uh, opportunities that people can take part in and so on. We have our dive weekends because one of the realities in our culture is the younger generations want to make a difference. They want to do something meaningful, something that changes lives. We have men's life in order to help our men be the kind of men the Scriptures speak of. We have parenting and marriage classes. We have special sermon series. Next week, we're going to be looking at Can We Trust the Bible? It's a topic that a lot of the world is asking. And there's a lot of popular books and writings that have come out. Da Vinci Code, perhaps one of the more um, infamous, uh, that talk about the unreliability of scriptures. And we're going to be in November doing a series on desperate households. It'll take off from desperate housewives. But uh, how is it? that the marriage and the family and the parenting uh, is struggling in our culture so severely and shipwrecking here and there. And we're going to see some pointers of how we can live out our faith in our families, in our parenting, in our marriages. For all of us who have ever flinched, for all of us who have ever been embarrassed but felt, and felt awkward, our text speaks to us today, and Paul gives us three good reasons that we should consider. The first one, Roman numeral number two, is not to be ashamed. Why? The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. 
In our text here, the Greek word used is kerygma, which means proclamation. That element was always present in the conversation, preaching, and teaching. It was God's power manifested in the good news. It's God's burning, consuming desire to be in relationship with all humanity. Kerygma, the good news, is basically this. Number one, Christ died according to the Scriptures in verses one, or 2 and 3 of Romans 1. Secondly, that Christ died for our sins. You read in verse 5 and speaks of God's grace. The third one is that Christ was raised from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin for all time. And fourthly, that Christ gives new birth to those who believe in verse 6. And fifthly, Christ calls us to live in relationship to Him. And sixth, Christ gives eternal life to all who believe. That's the heart of the good news. That's the heart of the kerygma, the proclamation that we are to make through our lives and through our words. We witness that power in the New Testament. Folks, we are guilty of limiting what God can do and what God wants to do in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And we do that out of a lack of faith. Paul says in verse 17, the righteousness will, or the righteous will live by faith. Do we live by faith? Or do we just live paycheck to paycheck and sometimes over and above that? It's all about putting the Holy Spirit in charge of our lives. Accepting the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 8, we receive, we will, uh, it says, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and be witnesses. In other words, a witness is one who shares what has happened in their life. Something has changed, dramatically changed. We find a peace, a comfort, healing, whatever it is that we found when we came to God, that somehow our lives and our words would show that forth. Kerygma, proclamation of what God has done for us. Living in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Heeding the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Obeying the prodding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Often in spite of me or us, we see God's power and changed lives, praise God. Sometimes we wonder how it happened. Or, wow, him, her? A little hard for us to believe. I wonder how many people said that about us when we came to know the Lord. And that's why it's so important to turn your phones off. So important to... uh, So important to bring the pre-Christian, the unsaved, the broken, the needy people around us to exposure of God's power and what God wants to do for them. Our small groups are kind of our front guard They're an opportunity to interface with the community in a way that's less threatening for people because coming to a church can be kind of daunting. They come in and they sit in something we call pews. You know, why do we call them that? You know, it's a foreign language they don't understand, but a small group where they're invited into a home, that's a different issue. And we need more evangelistic small groups that are concerned about our coworkers, our playmates on the playground or the racquetball court, the people that live next to us or across the street from us. We have special Sunday services or events. We have kids' Christmas programs coming up December the 8th. You'll want that on your calendar. It's a good opportunity to invite others. Sometimes they'll respond to message from a kid that they won't take from a pastor. 
Christmas Eve, we'll have a couple of special Christmas Eve services proclaiming the good news and the birth of Christ. Our camp and its ministry and various camps available to all ages. Our Vacation Bible School, 290 people here this last year. Tremendous outreach into the community. But you know, there's a lot of unchurched that didn't know a thing about it. How do we get the word out? How do we share with them? Our youth ministry touches lives all over the place. It's just incredible what they do. Your lives, your lives, as you touch base with people that you work with, play with, interact with, the person that helps you through the grocery line. And then B, the gospel is the salvation of God. The salvation of God. power of God and the salvation of God. Did you see it in verse 16? That God wants to see everyone saved. To save in the noun form of salvation, which basically means to rescue, to deliver from It suggests that we are in over our heads and that we need outside help. The gospel of salvation has eternal ramifications. Eternal ramifications for each life, each soul we interact with. God's love for each of us shown in Jesus Christ. So, don't be ashamed. And we have God's power And we have God's gift in salvation. We needn't have any shame. No shame in living as godly persons. Following Christ's example. Inviting those around us to come with us. To experience, to encounter the living God. And that leads me to the third observation. The gospel is the righteousness of God. Did you hear that in verse 17 of our text? For the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. Living, doing what is right, that's what righteous means. But also used to refer to how God looks upon those who put their trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. That God sees us as righteous in the blood of Christ shed for us in the forgiveness of our sins. And as sinners, we are incapable of fulfilling God's laws and standards, and therefore we are able to have fellowship with God only through Christ who makes us holy and makes us righteous. We can't fix it from the outside. All of our self-attempts to attain spirituality are for nothing. But in Christ, that debt of our sins has been paid in full. And through Christ, we experience relationship with our God. So why be embarrassed of something which brings people back into restored relationships with our God? It's something to celebrate. Do people see celebration on your face and your countenance as you interact with them in your world day to day? We went through an experience just a couple months ago called Veritas that the Covenant is doing to help make all of our churches healthy missional churches. Healthy means to pursue Christ, to love Him, to know our Lord Jesus Christ. And missional means to pursue Christ's priorities. He told us to go into all the world and make disciples. He told us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. We are supposed to pursue His priorities. And in Veritas, they talk about uh, healthy missional markers. And there's a number of them, but one of them 
ties in with today's sermon, and it's basically in the area of sharing Christ, sharing our faith, evangelism it's often called. And one of the things they have found in studies is that a healthy missional church consistently leads people to Jesus Christ. And so they would likely in a year's time have 41, in our last church, we used to have on our communion table, white roses anytime somebody accepted Jesus Christ into their life. And sometimes that was out in the marketplace. Sometimes it was a school teacher that had a chance to share Jesus and one of the children accepted Christ and we'd have a white rose on the table. Well, a healthy missional church would tend to have 41 roses, white roses on their table during the year's time. A stable church they would have about 25 because they are uh, stable, but people occasionally come to the Lord. The third kind of church is the critical moment church, and they would have maybe 10 Sundays where there'd be a white rose at best because only occasionally do people come to know Jesus Christ through the witness of that church. And the at-risk church that's on the verge of dying or being a legacy church, they would have maybe two white roses in a year's time. Stop and think about that a moment. In your bulletin on the front cover page, I put in there something I had put in, I think my first Sunday that I became interim lead pastor. And that's a kind of a motto I have for us for this season that I'm with you, and that is each one reach one. Simple math says that there would be twice as many of you here this morning if we did that, if we took that seriously. Just each one of you reached somebody this year. you have an insert in your bulletin and on the back side of the outline, and it says, let's take inventory. And there's a place for you to fill in people's names that you have, that you're praying for, that you would like to see encounter Jesus Christ. And then some questions or some statements there to kind of follow up and to think about them. And then down at the bottom, a day your friend could remember for eternity that if that person did respond to your prayers and to your reaching out and to your invitations, that that might make an eternal difference in their lives. And it's a day they would remember forever. So the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the salvation of God. The gospel is the righteousness of God. So finally, the gospel is dynamite. Dynamite is explosive. I don't know if you've ever been around when a stick has gone off. It's quite an event. I'm a police chaplain with Everett Police Department, and we did a training thing uh, for the officers and so on. They invited the chaplain to come along, say some prayers for them. And uh, I got to see the results of dynamite, you know, what it, the damage it can do. Just one stick, and we've got much more powerful stuff nowadays too. But used correctly, it can do incredible good. Dynamite has been used for many things for incredible good imploding buildings. If you've ever watched it, it's amazing. They can just put all of these explosive charges in all the right places, and that building just neatly comes down in a little puff of dirt, you know. Or getting rid of obstacles in the way of roads, or boring tunnels through the side of a mountain, or creating a piece of art like Mount Rushmore. Amazing. God's good news in Jesus Christ, is dynamite. It wants to blow away obstacles. It wants to 
blow away all the things that would hinder somebody from coming to Jesus Christ. It wants to blow away barriers in the lives of people that we share the good news with. It wants to blow up their preconceived notions. It wants to blow up the fears and anxieties. It wants to blow up their doubts and answer their questions. It wants to blow away their hurt, their pain, and their hang-ups. It wants to blow away their brokenness and neediness. Can we say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 15, that's why I am so eager to share the gospel. There's an urgency about dynamite. Because if you store dynamite, if you store it for a length of time, it begins to deteriorate. It becomes unstable and dangerous. And folks, if you keep the good news to yourself, if you hide it away and think that, oh, maybe someday, maybe someday, or you've rationalized it, oh, that's for missionaries and evangelists, well, the dynamite might explode. And it won't accomplish what it was intended to accomplish. When I was in junior high and senior high school, I had a friend that lived across the street from me. His name was Marshall. And I would try to share the gospel with him. And he came with me to VBS and the youth group and the boys' brigade and different things and, and whatnot. And was kind of open at times and other times kind of closed. Always had good questions. And I'd have to go have a chat with my pastor to find out the answers and so on. But, uh, you see, I was one of these quiet, shy guys, uh, kind of reserved usually, basically uh, kind of a coward, I guess. Uh, but I did have this sneaky little prankster side of me. So I can remember with Marshall that <clears throat> we'd have the bus stop. And from his house, he could not see the bus approach or anything like that. But what he would do is he would wait till the last minute so he wouldn't get cold or get wet in the rain or whatever. He would wait till the last minute and wait till we lined up. And when he li- we lined up, then he knew time, time for the bus. So there were times when we'd line up 10, 15 minutes early and so on. And he'd come running, dashing out and so on. And we'd stand there and wait and wait and wait for the bus and so on. Uh, or the other time, which was even a little meaner, was... Uh, when we all played up until the last second, the bus came, the doors opened, we quick poured into the bus, and, and he comes running like him. And one time we got the bus driver to even go along with us and to pull up a few hundred feet and, uh, as, he, as he was pulling away. And uh, true confessions from your pastor. <laughs> but he came to me after that event. And he said, Bill, I thought you were a Christian. Ouch. You see, the reality is we are witnesses. Everything we do in life, we witness, give bear witness to something. Some values, some, you know, inner drive of us and so on. And we can be either an effective good witness or not such a good witness. But you are bearing witness to something. And if we're just like the culture around us and you can't tell the Christians apart from those that don't believe in Christ yet unless you've got a program, something's wrong. Something's wrong.
what will it be for you? I want to share a couple statistics. We're in a situation like Israel's back in Judges chapter 2. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. We may be facing a similar danger today if churches are not able to engage uh, parents in training their children spiritually. Consider the following decline of evangelical Christians among the successive generations. And basically, those who are the builder generation, 1927 through 45, uh, 65% claim to be evangelical Christians. Of the boomers, 1946 through 1964, only 35%. That's a drop of 30%. The generation X from 1965 to 1976, only 16% claim to be evangelical Christians. The bridgers, which they call from 1977 to 1994, only 4% claim to be evangelical Christians. That's a little, little tough. Or in a covenant companion back a, a few years ago, talked about unchurched Americans say that church is full of hypocrites. Three-quarters of Americans who haven't gone to church in the last six months think it's full of hypocrites, and even more of them consider Christianity to be more about organized religion than loving God or loving people. And then later in the article, it says 78% said they would be willing to listen to someone who wanted to tell them about his or her Christian beliefs. How are we doing? How are we doing? You see, evangelism... Uh, I think there is a gift of a being an evangelist and so on, but I think evangelism in the sense that it's used in most of scriptures, uh, being a witness, is something that is all of our responsibility. It's each one of us taking what Christ and God has done for us and being able to put it in language for the other person to understand. Because you can argue till you're blue in the face all the doctrines of the Bible and so on, that's not what's going to lead them to Christ. It's going to be to see what Christ has done for you. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, albeit hard at times. May we say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of your gospel. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. We have a song of response this morning that we're going to do. It's a Newsboys song. Um, we've been maybe going a little slower this morning, so just be prepared, though. We're going to spice it up a little bit. Please sing along uh, when, you, uh, when you feel good about... Uh,